Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about penicillin. You've probably heard of penicillin, of course, an antibiotic that revolutionised medical treatment of bacterial infections around the world after its uh, quite incredible discovery. Uh, penicillin, it's fair to say, changed the world forever. It, it, it has saved countless lives of people who otherwise would have died to infections that are these days, you know, pretty bloody trivial to treat effectively. After the discovery of penicillin, after its refinement, it really did behave like a wonder drug. It cured people of terrible bacterial infections unbelievably quickly. Things like tuberculosis, pneumonia, gonorrhea, the list goes on. But how did penicillin come about? How was it discovered? How was it refined? It's an amazing story and it's full of both, you know, serendipitous and completely bizarre and ridiculous moments. Uh, you will have heard, of course, of the name Alexander Fleming in, con uh, in conjunction, in connection with penicillin, of course. But... By the end of this episode, you'll have met many other people like Howard Florey, Ernst Chain, Norman Heatley, many others as well. All these people, and so many more, had a huge impact on the way that penicillin was made available to humanity at large as it revolutionised modern medicine, as I say. However, as wonderfully beneficial penicillin has been to our civilization, and, and despite the fact that this episode will strike a very positive tone, I'm happy to say... There is a darker side of penicillin that we'll cover, and it's actually not involved in the history of penicillin so much as it is, you know, a history that, as I say, has largely been a positive one. It's actually the future of penicillin. But we'll get to that. First, let's get underway with, uh, with the history of this miraculous substance and how it was weaponized against harmful bacteria for the benefit of humankind. Here we go. So we're going all the way back. Okay, here we're going all the way back to... Uh, well, actually, it kind of depends, really. Alexander Fleming uh, discovered penicillin in 1928, but humans um, humans have been using antibiotics for thousands of years already. They just didn't really know that they were. They, you know, and they weren't very effective as penicillin would uh, eventually go on to be. An antibiotic, whether it's penicillin or, or anything else, uh, an antibiotic is a substance that that kills bacteria, obviously, right? Um, and typically, antibiotics are uh, they're, they're organic. They occur naturally. They're little microorganisms, uh, fungus or mold usually. They chomp their way through uh, through bacteria or, or stops the stops bacterial growth. Um, and they're not new. They're not new. As I mentioned, for thousands of years, people knew that sometimes putting mouldy bread on an infected wound would stop the infection. But this was a very haphazard and you know slapdash way of approaching medical treatment. And over the centuries, med medical knowledge was, I mean erratic to say the least but people did get some stuff right even if they didn't know why it was right for instance in poland in the 17th century uh, a common remedy for infected wounds was to use wet bread mixed with spider webs right in an effort to stave off uh, off infection and it was a combination of the mold from the bread and the fungal spores that were sometimes in spider webs uh, that would occasionally work wonders and would uh, would get rid of infections but again very inexact Right, because you know, other times you're just wiping damp bread and bloody spider vomit on your cut, and that's not always going to be ideal. But anyway, look, the fact remains that people knew that mold could be used to treat infection, and even if people did this very primitively for much of civilization's history, it was still something that people were aware of. In the 19th century, investigation into these treatments went up a gear. Scientists start to 
look at the way that various molds could be used to treat infection. Um, and it was one strain of fungal mold in particular, or one group of fungal molds, I should say, uh, penicillium, right, which was found to be reasonably effective in killing bacteria. From the 1870s onwards, various scientists, they observed things like, you know, they observed like the fact that different penicillium strains could inhibit bacterial growth or even fight off infection altogether. But their work didn't get too much traction. For instance, when the when the French scientist uh, Ernest Duchesne, he he published a paper in 1897 about how he used a, pr- a strain of penicillium to cure guinea pigs of typhoid, it was largely ignored. And this trend continued all the way through 1923 in Belgium. A pair of scientists, uh, Andre Gratia and Sarah Darth, right, they published their findings on how to uh, on how uh, various penicillium strains could fight things from staph infections all the way through to tuberculosis, but None of this caught on. People didn't pay attention, unfortunately, and the world had to wait until 1928 with Alexander Fleming's famously serendipitous discovery finally kicking off the process that would ultimately give us penicillin. Now, Alexander Fleming, very famous bloke. You may have heard of him before. He was a Scottish scientist. He was a microbiologist. And uh, before his discovery of penicillin, he'd already made some, some quite important contributions to scientific discovery, even before, as I say, even before 1928. For instance... He discovered the enzyme lysozyme, right? Which, of course, is... I mean, I don't need to tell you about lysozyme. Obviously, we all know that it attacks hydrolyzers and breaks glycosidic bonds in in peptidoglycans. Everyone knows that. Definitely didn't just... Copy that off the internet. Just we all we all know about bloody glycosidic bonds and peptidoglycans. We all know that, mate. Honestly, look, I got no idea what a lysozyme donor why is important, but I did want to mention it for a very good reason. Do you know, right, how Fleming discovered? The, do you know how he discovered this enzyme? The way that Fleming discovered lysozyme, right? Absolutely hilarious. Do you know where he found it? In his own snot. <laughs> <laughs> he's bloody picking his nose. Someone's walked in, mate. What are you doing? You're picking your nose. Like, oh no, no, no. I'm doing. I'm doing. Um. Oh, this is scientific research, mate. He's like, mate, you're in up to the knuckle. What are you doing? He's like, oh no. He pulls out a bloody book and he says, no, this thing very important, mate. Very important. It's got lysosome in it. What's lysosome? Oh, don't worry about that. It's all about glycosidic bonds and peptidoglycans. You, you wouldn't understand. But he's bloody. I mean, I'm not. I, I can't confirm that he discovered it after being caught picking his nose, but. You know, I didn't find any historical sources that indicate that that wasn't the case either. Anyway, the point is, right, he's a well-known scientist. He's, uh, he was known as a, as, as a very gifted and, and talented researcher. And in 1928, right, he's investigating Staphylococcus. Uh, this is a bacteria, of course. You may have heard of it. It's responsible for staph infections, obviously. He's investigating Staphylococcus uh, in his lab. Now, there are stories about his labs being chaotic and messy. We'll talk about this in a little bit. I don't know how much of this is true. Uh, Fleming's discovery of penicillin, right, um, it, it, you know, obviously took place less than 100 years ago. It already seems to have been given the whole don't let the truth get in a good, the way of good story treatment here. So we will investigate that in just a little bit. But back in 1928, he's working away. He's there in his lab at St. Mary's Hospital in London in August. And uh, he's got a family holiday coming up, right, in August. He's, he's going to head down to Suffolk with his family for a little bit here. Uh, so he gets a bit of prep work done ahead of his time away. He applied some samples of Staphylococcus to some Petri dishes. You know, them little sort of, the what are they, the circular containers that you grow stuff in, in, in high school science, right? So he whacks some Staphylococcus into them and he sticks them out of the way over in the corner of the, uh, of the lab so his research assistant could keep working and, you know, keep them out of the sunlight, just keep them out of the way. Now, then, after he's done that, packs his bags, off he goes to Suffolk on, on holiday with his family for a few weeks, completely unaware, right, that he is about to change the course of human history when he comes back 
from his time off. On the 3rd of September in 1928, right, Fleming, he returns to his laboratory, and of course, he checks on these Petri dishes that he'd filled full of Staphylococcus. Here's one I prepared earlier. But what's this, right? As he gets over to the uh, to these bloody samples in the Petri dishes, he goes, oh, bloody hell, bugger, bloody, look at this, mate. Bloody lids come off. This is terrible. And it's full of mould. Oh, bloody disgusting. This blue-green fungal mould. It's ruined the Staphylococcus sample. Look at that. What a pain in the ass it is. But hang on one second. Fleming, right? He gets out his microscope, he bungs the bloody Petri dish underneath it, and he has a look at how this mould has actually killed off the bacteria and stopped its growth, and he has a think about it. And perhaps he realised the magnitude of the discovery that he's just made here, because his next words, words uttered at a precipice of a revolution in medical history, his words go a long way to show his understanding of the powerful significance of this situation. Here's what he said. He said, hmm, that's funny. <laughs> I mean, you know, granted, it's not the most poetic or, you know, transcendent quote ever said, but I still absolutely love it. For me, it's right up there with bloody Roald Dahl's last words. Go and have a look at that. Anyway, in all seriousness, right, Fleming did appreciate that this mould's effect on the Staphylococcus bacteria was quite meaningful, right? He realised that having discovered a mould that eats away at bacteria, it would definitely have some meaningful purpose in scientific inquiry, you know, perhaps not the full extent that it ended up having, but uh, he did realise that this was something he wanted to look into further, right? And so, being the diligent science that he was, scientist that he was, he gathered up this mould and he put it into some new Petri dishes, right, so as to cultivate it further. He wanted to grow more of the mould for himself. And after growing a bunch of this bacteria-killing mould, this time he deliberately introduced it to Petri dishes filled with Staphylococcus. So rather than having just returned from holiday and found it there, who knows how it got there, he actually introduced it deliberately. And sure enough, any dish where the mould and the bacteria came into contact resulted in the bacteria being killed off by the mould. It was unable to grow anywhere near the mould and the Petri dishes. It would, it, would just, it would just be killed, right? And years later, Fleming commented on this particular day when he ran this particular experiment, right? And he said, When I woke up just after dawn on September the 28th, 1928, I certainly didn't plan to revolutionise all medicine by discovering the world's first antibiotic or bacterial killer. But I suppose that was exactly what I did. Now, over the years, many people have told and retold the story of Fleming's discovery. So, you know, so many times it's difficult to actually sort of pick apart the truth from the exaggeration. There are all sorts of stories about this discovery he made, stories involved some of him having left a window open through which mould spores may have flown and landed on the Petri dishes. Some say that the lab technicians and cleaners didn't bother doing their job while he was away, so things got dirty and grimy in there. Um, there's another story that says that he left a half-eaten sandwich next to his Petri dishes. I don't know if he was a fan of eating penicillium sandwiches, but these stories and so many others are almost certainly just false. It wasn't a case of an open window or lazy cleaning staff or even a half-eaten sandwich. It was just one of those regular, everyday occurrences of a bit of good luck. I mean, I, 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 I guess this bit of good luck ended up saving the lives of countless millions around the world. So I guess you could argue that it was a little more than a bit of good luck. But, you know, you know what I'm saying here. Anyway, you may wonder where the mould actually did come from. And while there's been some debate about this over the years, you know sort of mired by the uh, the never let the good truth get in the way of good story approach that many people have told while talking about Fleming. There is a, a reasonable level of consensus, right? The leading theory 
is that the mould spores came from the nearby lab of an Irish botanist whose name was Charles John Patrick Latouche, right? Now, Latouche, he was investigating strains of penicillium, so the very, you know, the same mould that ended up in the Petri dish, penicillium, a strain of it, right? He was trying to figure out if uh, certain strains of penicillium caused asthma, of all things, and it's likely that the spores escaped from his lab, right, and drifted into Fleming's before settling on the Petri dish and, of course, flourishing there in as Petri dishes are meant to do, you know, grow things like that. The mould grew there and chomped away at the bacteria. So a very big bit of good luck, you know, not just for Fleming, but for humanity altogether, as you today no doubt know. Everyone's heard of antibiotics, everyone's heard of penicillin, and it all started here in this, uh, in this laboratory in London in 1928. Anyway, after this discovery... Fleming quickly concluded that this mould was indeed a substance that, that killed bacteria. You know, he's, he's run a controlled trial of it now. He's not just bunged it under the microscope after a holiday in Suffolk. He's actually come back. He's, he's done a controlled trial and figured out, right, this actually does what I think it does, right? And uh, after having investigated this further, he later confirmed that it was indeed a strain of the fungus penicillium that was, uh, you know, this mould was, 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 a, was a strain of, of penicillium. But he did not, what he did not realise immediately at least, was the, the incredible applications of such a discovery. You know, he didn't think, never mind killing Staphylococcus in a Petri dish, how about killing Staphylococcus in a human body? That didn't occur to Fleming at the time, as he, as a microbiologist, was more interested in using the mould, using the strain of penicillium, as a way to isolate bacterial samples. He noticed that it killed certain types of bacteria, but not others. That's still true of many antibiotics today. And so he thought, here we go. This will be a great way to separate different bacteria out because I can use the mold to eat away certain bacteria to leave others. And then, you know, it's a great way to isolate uh, specimens or samples of certain bacteria. So as a result, because obviously he thought it'd be a very useful tool for the uh, for the science of microbiology, Fleming began to experiment with uh, with this mold, testing to see which bacteria uh, it, it was effective against. It, it killed Staphylococcus, it's, it killed diphtheria, it killed Streptococcus, while it was ineffective against some other stuff like typhoid, like influenza. The mold wasn't as strongly effective as Fleming wanted it to be for his experiments. And uh, so as a result of this, in the coming months, he began vigorous attempts to cultivate it further, find a more concentrated strain or, or you know, uh, in, in some way make it, more, uh, make it more effective, more potent, more powerful. And this essentially resulted in him mixing up a moldy fungal juice, right, designed to ferment and brew and bubble away uh, in order to create as much of the mould as possible in as high a concentration possible. So we all know that mould loves to grow in, you know, matter what, what, warm, damp, wet areas, whatever else. He was deliberately feeding this mould, making this disgusting, you know, mould stew in order to try to get as much of this, uh, this strain of penicillium as possible. He named this mouldy fungal juice penicillin, which is certainly... A more catchy title than mouldy fungal juice. Um, and along with some research assistants, Stuart Craddock and Frederick Ridley, he continued experimenting with the uh, with the mould that they were uh, that they were cultivating. However, they never succeeded in isolating penicillin properly, despite a range of chemical and biological endeavours to do exactly this, right? They actually couldn't extract the penicillin from the mould itself. So every bit of penicillin they had was, I don't want to say contaminated, but it was at least tied up in this penicillin mould. 
Uh, and obviously, without access to pure penicillin, they weren't able to uh, to, to fully realise the, uh, the, the the proper results, the the ultimate results of, uh, of the discovery of a, of a substance like this. Fleming still, even throughout this entire process, he didn't discover, he, sorry, he didn't grasp the full impact of his discovery. He knew it could potentially have medical application, but he went on record as saying that he wasn't able to isolate or purify it. And, and as the years went on, he slowly abandoned his attempts because he was seeing uh, so making so little headway into it. Fortunately for humanity, however, that's not where the story stops. I'm very, very happy to say. Fleming was a microbiologist, as I mentioned. He wasn't a chemist. He even admitted his background wasn't hugely appropriate for what he was trying to achieve with chemically isolating and purifying penicillin from the mould that contained it. This, this wasn't his background. This wasn't what he was trained to do. But happily, at the end of the 1930s, others took an interest in his work and picked up where he left off. In 1939, a bloke whose name was Ernst Boris Chain, he was a German-born Jewish chemist. He had fled his native Germany, of course, in 1933 after the uh, the Nazi party seized power. And uh, Chain, he worked at the University of Oxford. And at one point, right, after after discovering this uh, this research that Fleming had been doing, he approached his supervisor, a bloke whose name was Howard Florey. And he says, listen here, Howard, mate, I've come across this bloke Fleming's work, right? I've come across his work on penicillin. I want to take a closer look at it. Now, Flory, he's an Australian, although I have to say a South Australian, so it hardly really counts. Anyway, he's also quite interested. He's quite intrigued by this work that Fleming had done, right? And the pair of them, as chemists, right, uh, they decide they want to they start looking into this more closely, right? Now, happily, Flory, Flory had just received a, a quite a sizable research grant into, uh, into the investigation of antibiotics. So even with Fleming's doubts about penicillin's medical applications, there was no doubt that it was indeed a powerful antibiotic, and with proper development, it could be put to use medically. So Flory and Chain, they decided Fleming's work warranted more research, and Flory assembled a team of scientists to delve deeper into this new substance. And it wasn't long before they had some incredible results. Instead of you know, a microbiologist and two assistants working on what was, in essence, a chemical problem, there was now a fully funded team of biochemists working to unlock the potential of this substance. And in mid-1939, they managed to develop a sample of penicillin that was so concentrated that it could be used to fight a bacterial infection. In this case, lab mice that had been infected with Staphylococcus. Eight mice were infected, Four were given this concentrated dose of penicillin, and these four mice recovered overnight. Chain characterized this result as a miracle. And you can see why. Here was a drug that removed bacterial infection almost instantaneously. It seemed too good to be true. And from one perspective, it kind of was. Because it was very difficult at this point to produce such concentrated amounts of penicillin. And isolating the chemical penicillin from the mould itself was still proving very tricky. Fleming had been unable to do it, and even Flory's team here is not finding it an easy thing to do. It wasn't until 1941, some years later, that this Oxford team finally revealed details of their method for isolating penicillin, which meant now that, again, after years of research, highly concentrated or even properly purified doses were at last a real possibility. Now, some of these doses that the team went on to make were used in one of the most famous first instances of using penicillin to, to, to treat bacterial infection in humans. A bloke whose name was Albert Alexander, right? He was a cop. 
48 years of age, and while he was working in the garden one day, he accidentally scratched himself on the thorn of a rose bush, and this scratch became quite badly infected. The infection spread throughout his entire head until essentially he just looked an absolute mess. He was His, his face was covered in pus-filled abscesses, uh, and to make matters worse, the infection had spread to one of his eyes, which had actually had to be, you know, it, it had to be removed. So... He was in a bad way and only getting worse. It was quite clear that this this infection was going to kill him. He was going to die of this infection. That much was certain. And so the Oxford team, they offered him this highly experimental treatment of this new substance they've they've put together, this, you know, this penicillin. Having only ever tested it on mice, Flory's team, they weren't sure. They, there was some hesitation with uh, with them giving Alexander this treatment. They didn't know what side effects it might have in humans, but Alexander's tragic case, as cynical as this sounds, it presented the perfect opportunity for their research. You know, as, as callous as it was, he really had very little to lose. His infection was going to kill him. That was beyond a doubt. So he might as well try this new treatment in case it really was the miracle cure that it could potentially be. Alexander decided to go along with the treatment. He was, he was administered with a dose of penicillin. And would you believe it, the effect of the treatment was absolutely beyond belief. Within a day, the infection had begun to recede. He was feeling better than he had for a long time. His fever had begun to disappear. He was up talking and eating on track to recovery. But I'm sorry to say that Alexander's story didn't end up being a happy one. Because sadly, Flory and his team... They just didn't have enough penicillin to continue his treatment. It was 1941. It's the midst of the Second World War. Flory's team, they didn't have the resources that they needed to produce penicillin on a large scale. They did what they could. Once they'd exhausted their supplies of penicillin, they attempted to extract the remnants of, of it from, his, from, from the urine that Alexander passed, but even that wasn't enough. A few days after this miraculous start to his recovery, without any more penicillin, the bacteria once again took hold. And he relapsed and died a few days later, tragically. But his death was not in vain because this brief recovery that he had demonstrated, it showed that penicillin may just be the miracle treatment but that the Oxford team suspected that it was. And this was a view that only strengthened as time passed, especially after a collaboration between Fleming, the bloke who had discovered the substance, and Flory, the bloke who was working on developing it, a collaboration between these two uh, and the research into penicillin when Fleming oversaw the treatment of a man named Harry Lambert, who was infected with streptococcal meningitis. Fleming gave Lambert a dose of Flory's penicillin sample that Flory had given to Fleming. And once again, a remarkable and immediate recovery began. And happily, this time, the patient survived. Lambert made a full recovery and demonstrated to the world the miraculous curative potential of penicillin. And by this time, by the time that Lambert is being treated and confirming the hypothesis of these scientists, the focus was now on mass production of penicillin. Flory's Oxford team in their lab were unable to produce penicillin on any large scale. They were doing their best. They had to brew 2,000 litres of mould juice, or sorry to give it its proper term, culture fluid, they had, to, they had to brew 2,000 litres of the stuff, 
to extract a single dose of penicillin, a woefully inefficient rate. One of Flory's scientists, a bloke whose name was Norman Heatley, he had nicked more or less every single container he could find in order to cultivate as, as much of this culture fluid as he could. He'd filled jars and bottles and even bedpans just to get as much mould as possible, but it still wasn't enough. And Flory's team, they weren't able to produce anything more than a minimal amount of samples of penicillin. And unfortunately, the UK government wasn't in a position to properly support their efforts to improve on this. The Second World War was consuming far too much of their focus and their resources. And so Flora and his team, they looked farther afield. In 1941, Flora and Heatley, they travelled across the Atlantic to the United States. And there, they met with various scientists, researchers, politicians and industry leaders in an effort to begin mass production. Of penicillin. Now, of course, when travelling to the States, Flory and Heatley, they brought with them samples of penicillin to show the people they were going to meet in America. But they were worried that they would lose samples in test tubes that they brought with them. So instead, believe it or not, they actually smeared the mould containing penicillin inside their coat pockets just to ensure that it would arrive safely. You know, to make sure they didn't lose their test tube that them broke or anything, they smeared the mould inside their pockets to, to, you know, to make sure it would arrive there and they'd be able to demonstrate what it could do to, uh, to the people in America. Anyway, Florian Heatley, they quickly made progress with their efforts to get the United States to mass-produce penicillin. I can tell you this. They ended up with the Northern Regional Research Laboratory, the NRRL. This is in Peoria in Illinois. Uh, and it had the facilities to cultivate large quantities of mould. Rather than using bottles and bedpans, they had enormous big vats where culture fluid could be, uh, you know, could be used to, to, to make penicillin on a, on a much larger scale. But here's the problem. Even after this process, process got underway at the NRRL, right, even as they worked on large-scale fermentation of the mould, the scientists over in America, they came to the conclusion that the mould that had been found in Fleming's lab all those years ago, 1928, it just wasn't up to the task. It just wasn't strong enough. We've already talked a fair bit about how it was very difficult to extract a concentrated amount of penicillin from this penicillium mould, how purifying it was also very tricky. You know, you, you, you're spending 2,000 litres of fluid to get a single dose. It's just not, it's not efficient enough, right? So the Americans decided, therefore, to take a different tack altogether. They began a worldwide search for a different strain of penicillin, one that contained penicillin in greater concentrations. They sent scouts across the entire globe, many of, uh, many of whom brought back very promising samples of mold. Imagine this. Imagine being called into your boss one day. All right, mate, got a new task for you. Where are you? Oh, yep, you're off to China. Oh, very good. What am I going to do there? I need you to bring back mold for me and just get some stuff that's like all moldy and just bring it back. But that is what happened. People were sent to China, South Africa, India, all sorts of places, and they brought back some samples that were very promising indeed. So the search... Well, it would have been a success had it not been for what happened a little closer to home instead, right? Because the most effective sample of penicillium, right, it was found not in some far-flung corner of the earth. No, it was found, if you'll believe it, in the very same town as the laboratory in Peoria itself. One day in 1943, a woman who had been at the Peoria fruit market arrived at the NRRL, right, with a cantaloupe covered in mould. 
Now, popular stories tell it was actually say it was actually a laboratory assistant named Mary Hunt, who was later nicknamed Moldy Mary. I don't know if that's how you want to go down in history, but according to one of the scientists who worked at the NRRL, this isn't true. It was just some lady who came in one day with a mouldy melon, and this mouldy melon is, without a doubt, the most important fruit in human history. As the mould that was found on this cantaloupe proved to be an unbelievably powerful and potent strain of penicillium. It was so powerful, it was so potent, that it immediately threw production of penicillin into top gear. Just to illustrate for you here, right? When they were cultivating the mould, right back to start with, when they're cultivating the mould in these small, like, one-litre containers, the yield of penicillin, less than 1%, an infinitesimal amount, right? By 1945, thanks in, in, a, in a large way to this, to this mouldy cantaloupe, right, the NRRL was able to brew up culture fluid for the mould that produced a 90% yield in vats that were the size of backyard pools. The stuff that they did to this mould in order to get this yield was incredible. They developed it so that it would grow while submerged. They, you know, not just on the surface of the vat, so they could make even more of it in these huge pools. They blasted it with x-rays to encourage mutations, genetic mutations, to make it even more powerful, even more efficient. Mass production of penicillin was in full swing, catalyzed enormously by the discovery of just one single cantaloupe, what was at the Peoria fruit market and got a bit mouldy one day. Can you believe it? A mouldy bit of fruit at a market somewhere led to a full-scale medical revolution. You may owe your life to this mouldy cantaloupe. In 1941, Flory's team struggled to make enough penicillin to treat poor Albert Alexander in his scratched face. But then by mid-1942, the United States had already manufactured 400 million units of penicillin. And by 1945, after this cantaloupe arrived, they were making 650 billion units every month. Its effect on human health were as immediate as they were staggering. In the middle of the Second World War, United States production of penicillin meant that soldiers just didn't die of infections like they used to. For example, in the First World War, bacterial pneumonia had an 18% death rate. After penicillin was used in the Second World War, that figure plummeted to less than 1%. Obviously, going to war is a very dangerous thing. A lot of deaths that took place in wars, and, and this isn't just the first or the second world, this is wars throughout history. They weren't from injuries sustained on the battlefield then and there. They were the infections that these injuries developed later on or the illnesses that you got while traveling in a, in, in, a, in a large army. And penicillin was here to consign these bacterial infections to the scrapyard of history. Many people no longer had to suffer amputations, as infections that would have otherwise caused them to lose a limb could instead be treated with penicillin. Pneumonia, tuberculosis, two diseases with merciless death rates. They were brought under control almost overnight with the advancement of penicillin. Women in childbirth, who were always very susceptible to infection, that a much higher survival rate thanks to penicillin staving off these potential illnesses. Antibiotics became a critical part of advanced surgeries, transplants and the like, as well as obviously protecting patients from the overall risk of bacterial infection that comes with, you know, a surgeon opening you up. Gone are the days when a scratch from a rose bush would condemn you to a slow and painful death. Penicillin 
and the antibiotic revolution that it brought about mean that most bacterial infections become a nuisance, not a death sentence. It is virtually impossible to overstate the impact that penicillin has had on medicine. It is one of the greatest medical discoveries in human history. And it has been harnessed to save the lives of millions upon millions of people. And and the thing is, today, we don't even think about it in those terms. You know, sure, if someone were to have blood poisoning or tuberculosis or something very serious, you go, oh, geez, you know, thank goodness we've got penicillin to save them. Otherwise, they're absolutely buggered. Bloody hell, it's good we've got this thing to, to keep them alive. But here's the thing. As poor Albert Alexander showed us all those years ago, sometimes all it took was a little scratch. It's very likely that you, you, exalted listener, listening right now, it's very likely that you have had antibiotics at some point in your life, and while you, you know, probably thought of the infection that they treated as something that was relatively minor and harmless, it's only because of penicillin and antibiotics that you never worried about it killing you in the first place. I told you that you may owe your life to this mouldy cantaloupe, and in a very real way, that's true. Any one of the illnesses that you may have had throughout your life that, you know, were due to a bacterial infection, any one of those illnesses could have just killed you were it not for penicillin and the antibiotic revolution that it brought about. And today, instead of being a desperate matter of life or death to fight off a bacterial infection, it's as simple for many as a trip down the doctor for a course of antibiotics. Alexander Fleming, Howard Florey, and Ernst Chain, they were honoured with the 1945 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, and rightly bloody so, you would think. But this, very interestingly, takes us out of half-assed history and into half-assed future here. As Fleming himself, during his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, issued a sobering warning to the world. Here's what he said. The time may come when penicillin can be bought by anyone in the shops. Then there is the danger that the ignorant man may easily underdose himself and by exposing his microbes to non-lethal quantities of the drug, make them resistant. And this is happening right now, today. Antibiotics are becoming less and less effective as time goes on. And the reason for it is a very simple one. Antibiotics are used to treat bacterial infections. You put the antibiotics in your body, they kill the bacteria, they get rid of the infection, and job done. Great. Except, they don't always manage to kill every bacterium. Ones that have higher resistance to antibiotics survive the treatment. So what we are doing, in effect, is breeding within ourselves bacteria that are naturally resistant to antibiotics. And as time has gone on, the problem has only become worse. The bacteria that cause things like pneumonia, tuberculosis, or gonorrhea are constantly developing new resistances to new antibiotics. It's an arms race between pharmaceutical research and the bacteria that it's trying to kill. And it is not a race that we are guaranteed or perhaps even likely to win. The World Health Organization characterizes antibiotic resistance as one of the biggest threats to global health, food security, and development today. Antibiotic resistance is being catalyzed, I'm sorry to say, by misuse and overprescription of antibiotics. Every course taken increases our susceptibility ever ever so slightly to antibiotic resistance. 
We need to stop looking at antibiotics as a simple and straightforward get out of jail free card when you're sick and instead focus on prevention of bacterial infections rather than treatment. Because again, every course of antibiotics is slowly but surely weakening the human race. And it's not just humans either. Antibiotics are given to animals in agriculture in some cases as a preventative measure rather than as a cure. And none of this is helping. We were lucky enough to come across what is essentially a miracle cure for so many horrific diseases that have plagued humanity for millennia. And it's important that we don't squander this good fortune. It is important that the curative properties of antibiotics are preserved for future generations. Fleming was eerily prescient with his Nobel acceptance speech. As a man who helped to save millions of lives, he was no less circumspect about the dangers of the future as a result. The cold, hard truth of the matter is that antibiotic resistance does pose a very real threat to the long-term health of our species, and as a result, antibiotics should be seen as more of a last resort rather than a first step. And instead, again, the solution is prevention. The discovery of penicillin brought about a medical revolution, one that benefited humanity to an extent that it really is very difficult to properly encapsulate. But we, as a civilization, we have a collective responsibility to ensure that future generations have access to the benefits of this revolution, just as we have, so that no one else dies of a scratch from a rosebush. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the history of penicillin and with it, the warning of the dangers of antibiotic resistance into the future. So I do hope you learned a thing or two. And to tell you what, owing your life to a moldy cantaloupe is not something that I thought I'd have to process this week. But hey, now you have to as well. Anyway, thanks for listening to this episode of Half Ass History, of course. If you want to learn more about the show or get access to old episodes, you can go to the website, halfasshistory.net. And there, of course, you'll also find a contact form to get in touch with the show. The show has moved to a new platform. I'd like to thank Anchor for uh, for hosting Half Us History now. Uh, the website will remain, but if you want a direct link to the show, uh, the show's feed, you can now go to anchor.fm slash history. although the site will remain largely unchanged, but you may notice some changes on the back end of your chosen podcast app. Uh, if there are any difficulties, any issues, please let me know, history at gmail.com, or you can use the contact form to let me know if you're having any problems. Uh, I do need feedback. I think the transition went through pretty smoothly, but if there are any, uh, any wrinkles, any teething problems, I do want to hear about them so I can make sure I get them solved. Anyway... A special thank you, of course, goes to the Patreon supporters of this show. Thank you one and all for uh, supporting the show financially week in and week out. And if you'd like to join their exalted ranks, of course, patreon.com slash history. You can go there and find all the details. But that'll do it. That'll do it for this week. As ever, we're going to close out the show with a question posed on Reddit. Of course, it is one to do with penicillin, one to do with antibiotic technology, and also a question that really is making me reconsider what I'm going to do in the near future to look after my health. It comes to us from American Freedom 1776 who asks, if penicillin comes from mould, does that mean I can save on medical expenses if I eat my mouldy pizza instead of throwing it out? Mm-hmm.